0: Welcome to Beer and Bikes, your regular digital marketing and PR podcast that is cruising gently at an altitude of financial services. You've got me, Amy Rowe, and Michael Taggart. Take it away, Michael. Michael? Michael! Come back, I didn't mean that.
1: I really love this theme tune, you know.
0: This week, we've been catching up with Ian McKenna, founder of Digital Wealth Insights. The company has just launched a robo-advice comparison service for financial advisors. We're also going to be asking why online encyclopaedia Wikipedia has banned the Daily Mail. Uh, But first, you know what time it is. It's beer o'clock. Unfortunately, I've made a big mistake, Michael, and I forgot to bring the beers that we were given by the Bamfords a couple of weeks back. I swear that's not because I drank them.
1: Oh no!
0: Yeah, but I do have uh, a replacement. I've got some coffee. Is that all right? It's instant.
1: Yeah, that's fine.
0: <laughs> okay, I think it's time to talk about Daily Mail. Michael, Wikipedia editors have voted to ban Daily Mail as a source on its website. What's the story, Jack Jackanory?
1: Okay, so first of all, it's important to recap what Wikipedia actually is point naught 0.05% of people who are listening to this we wouldn't know. Um, it's it's an open source website in that anyone can collaborate or contribute content. It is, as you said, basically an online encyclopedia and has pages and pages about almost everything in the world. So anyone can contribute within reason, but the facts need to be checked and backed up where possible by links and sources. So And if they're not volunteer editors, go in, they flag up the, the, the supposed fact... And they say this needs to be cited if it's not, or if it's false or misleading, or looks false or misleading, they'll flag that too.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, what, what until now, obviously, what's happened?
1: Okay, so what we're talking about today is a highly unusual move for Wikipedia. It rarely puts in place a blanket ban on publications like the blanket ban it's put on the Daily Mail. And it actually still allows links... To dubious sources like the Kremlin-backed news organization Russia Today and Fox News, of course, in America, both of which are, I think everyone would agree slightly dubious. But the um, the editors described the arguments for a Daily Mail ban as centered on the Daily Mail's reputation for poor fact-checking, sensationalism, and flat-out fabrication. Great alliteration, guys. <laughs>
0: First they came for the Daily Mail. That actually all sounds a bit like start of something big.
1: Well, yeah, it could be. Wikipedia does generally say when sources are unreliable already, but this time it's asking editors to remove up to 12,000 links to the Daily Mail and replace them with other links where possible. And I can imagine that there are some SEO people out there who are clutching the table for support at the moment.
0: Oh, yeah, I bet. And So why now? I mean... I I think I can guess, but can you tell us?
1: Fake news! It's all about fake news, isn't it? So we've had the hugely controversial election of Donald Trump, um, thought in many circles to be directly attributable to blame for the spread of fake news and slurs about Hillary Clinton. So there's that. We had the, um, the misleading headlines on both sides of the EU referendum debate. £350 million for the NHS, anyone? Um... And we've also had um, similar sort of stuff in the the Brexit debate as well. Sorry, that is the same thing, isn't it? So this... uh, Don't go off script! This isn't... uh, I mean, it's not a big surprise, Amy. It's a warning shot across the bowels.
0: So surely the site is now going to have to follow suit and look at other publications and not just the poor old Daily Mail. Is this really fair, Michael? I know you don't mind me dropping this in every conversation possible, but you used to work at the Daily Mail. Do you think they've been treated a little bit unfairly? Well, yeah, it's
1: fairly obvious that it's not a terribly different from other newspapers, but it is actually the bête noir of the liberal, latte-drinking, Islington-set uh, liberal establishment. And that's just the way it's always been. So there are other newspapers that arguably have more lies... Have more stories about what people are wearing. Are more mean to um, illegal immigrants. Ha- tell more silly fake news stories about celebrities, but don't ju- just don't get up the backs of the liberal elite in the same way.
0: Michael, what's large, mechanical, and looks a bit human-shaped and shouts "I'll be back"?
1: Is it a BMW that's been programmed? to look like a human and has a voice system on it
0: no but that's really imp- an impressive guess it's actually uh no it's robo advice everybody's favorite nonsensical term who in the what now yeah actually ian mckenna hates that uh hates that phrase uh robo advice ian mckenna of digital wealth insights how do i know that michael
1: well amy we caught up with ian earlier this week you were there in fact so you might remember um he's launched a new comparison service for what he calls automated advice offerings and we were at um, the, a talk called financial advice in the digital world in central london it was hosted by the lovely john lapin everyone's favorite journalist um, and put together um by digital wealth insights and a couple of other partners Um, The panel included Ian um, and Lisa Kaplan, who listeners might know, um, who's the Head of Financial Advice at Nutmeg, and uh, our friend Ben Goss, who's Chief Executive at Distribution Technology um, and others. Um, In between asking the panel questions such as, uh, get this one, Amy, it's a great question, what subject would you take off the curriculum to make way for financial education? That was my curved ball. More on that later. We interviewed Ian. So and here's that interview. Now. Hello Ian. Um you've had evening. quite an exciting week. We've been reading about you a fair bit in the media.
2: What's going on? Um well I've spent del- somebody pointed out to me late last year that you know fintech has become the buzz thing over the last sort of couple of years. Um We've been running a a boutique consultancy all around about fintech since 1995. So somebody's sort of, a couple of people in fact have suggested that perhaps we're a little bit ahead of the curve in in terms of our thinking, Mm. which is quite nice. Um, Again, digital advice. I hate and abhor the robo term and I think it's actually worth perhaps touching on that just for a minute. I was going to
0: ask you whether you think we should change it.
2: I think, you know, I, I would. The only positive about the term robo advice is headlam writers love it. Mm. Um, but it brings with it such a negative connotation. And it's actually really. Imp- people should understand where it came from. Um, the term, I'm not going to go in, I do know who originally coined it. It, it. it was coined by somebody in the US who was a traditional advisor at the time. He's now become a huge advocate of, of digital advice, but at the time was a traditional advisor and wanted to basically, you know, turn people against the concept of automated advice. So it was a good way of, you know, coming up with a term which very effectively made automated advice or digital advice sound scary and intimidating and bad.
1: So tell us why it's
2: not then Ian. Um, it's. It, it really is is a huge tool to democratize the advice process. you know what you're talking about, and I, I think there's yeah a couple of the key points will be this evening you know what's the role, how does financial advice work in a digital world? Um, and the answer is it depends which community you're seeking to address. if you're an advisor working in in the wealth management uh, IFA space right now. Frankly, your clients are using technology throughout their lives, um, and especially high net worth individuals. And if you're kidding yourself that they're not, you're just fooling yourself. Um, there's, there's a wealth of research that demonstrates that high net worth customers, yes, they value personal relationships, but they are used to using technology for a wide range of things and they expect technology increasingly. So if you're operating in the established wealth and advice space, the optimal solution really is the best blend of technology with human advice. But the other side of that coin is, frankly, the, uh, the established advice community in this country serves at best of the population and that's probably generous. The reality is we've got perhaps another 45% of the population who sadly will never never have to worry about saving because their life is just gonna be constantly mired in debt and the only retirement income they will get will be whatever comes from the state. But you've got another 45% who have money, really would like to understand what to do with it, but either can't afford highly qualified, very professional advisors. I mean, you know, we've done a great job in this in this industry over the last five years, we've done a great job in the last 15 years, raising the standards of financial advice. Um, and we now have highly qualified advisors, but highly qualified advisors deserve to be highly paid, which makes their, their services unaffordable to quite literally millions of people who need their services. So the key thing about digital advice, automated advice, is it's an opportunity to reach a vast audience of people who need financial advice and guidance. And I think there's a really interesting you know, debate on advice versus guidance, but they need support, they need help in different ways. They just can't afford it at the price point at which it's delivered through highly qualified individuals. And
1: okay, well, we'll come back in a minute to this sort of the mass market and the advice gap and all that. And we'll talk a little bit about your exciting innovation. Um, but on the kind of the, the high end, I'm not going to ask you to dish the dirt on companies not performing well. Mm. But do you think there's any kind of traditional wealth managers that are actually grasping the points that you're making? That even wealthy people now have a major part of their life is using digital technology. Oh, absolutely, there are. Can you name? Can you name
2: those? Some people who have been doing it for many years. True Potential would would be an example. Um, there, there are a number more. Um, some I can't talk about. There are quite a number I can't talk about because of non-disclosure agreements. Who are quietly building some really interesting stuff right now, and you know do expect to see a lot of change. I think, you know, there are many ways in which you can sort of subdivide the advice community. But one measure I increasingly look at is you've got a very, you, you've got a very vocal minority saying technology won't change advice and then you've got a quiet majority just getting on with it. And, and you know some of those people that are so vigorously saying, someone spends so much time arguing that this won't happen, you do wonder, are they actually writing any business themselves? What we're seeing is scale advice businesses looking at how they can in, enhance and it their propositions through the use of technology it's probably also worth mentioning that you know the fca are taking far greater interest now in advice technology and how technology is used in the advice process we're running an event with them Um, i'm afraid it's going to be chatham house rules so i can't go into what comes out of it but we're running an event with advisors with them in a couple of weeks time Um, particularly to you know they want to hear about how advisors are using technology In their business, and equally share with the advisors how they're how they're looking for advisors to be using technology.
0: Ian, can I jump ahead to your proposition? Um, Can you foresee a day where, like um, Money Supermarket um, ads are all over the TV, so Money Supermarket, etc., that uh, your sort of robo advice comparison service is? Sort of beamed out across the homes of everybody in the UK.
2: It's been really interesting to see the the, you know, the number of people that have come back and said, "Is there going to be a consumer version of this?" Um, it was always on the plan. Uh, that plan might be being accelerated at the moment, but you know, based on the demand that we've seen, um, I think you certainly. I've spent going back to some of, you know some of the points I was making earlier. I started travelling the world looking at automated advice extensively back in 2012 when no-one was even thinking about it, you know, and, and I think that's the difference. It's something that, yeah, I I typically spend about two and a half months a year travelling around the world looking at what's going on in, in other jurisdictions. And the States is always ahead, right? The States is always ahead, um, and you can absolutely see, I mean, when I look at what's going on over here, I, it very clearly maps to where the what U.S. was in 2014, but there are some things we've clearly learned some lessons from the from the U.S. Um, in terms of more quickly pivoting, so that there's far more focus on B2B to C use of solutions rather than just D2C propositions. Um, One of the things that we're really aiming at with Digital Wealth Insights is to create um, a service, create a a knowledge base where firms can understand who are the right advice partners, digital partners to be working with. That's what the whole site is all about. Trying to define far more clearly, it comes back to this earlier point about robo-advice, Robo-advice is used as a catch-all phrase for everything. Where we started from with Digital Wealth Insights was actually to sit down and say, well, what are all the different attributes of an advice proposition? So we start by separating out firms that are offering an advice proposition from firms that are offering a non-advised proposition. And the vast majority of things that are emerging in the digital advice space at the moment aren't advice. They're forms of guidance. Um, we then also look at personal financial management and tools that can be used to help people take control of their day-to-day, and we see that as a really, really important area. And again, micro savings. So we've got sort of four core areas that we've, we've in, then in each of those areas, set, set, created a detailed set of measures against which we assess all the propositions, so that if you look at the outputs that come from our analysis, they're all in a consistent style. So if you compared the report for, um, say, MoneyPOT with the report for Wealthify, with the report for Scalable Capital, etc., they're all in a consistent style, and you can see what they're doing relative to each other. And a big part of what we've got to do is, uh, in the longer run, is educate the consumer to better understand what the difference is between advised and non-advised what the benefits are of advised as opposed to non-advised. I would certainly, I'd be the first to recognise that there are significant benefits to an advised proposition over a non-advised proposition. But I'm afraid as an industry, we do a very poor job of articulating that to the consumer. You've only got to look at the huge growth in non-advice over the last you know five or six years
1: Hargreaves Lansdowne nutmeg
2: Hargreaves Lansdowne a whole range of people The 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 sad reality is that unfortunately consumers today an awful lot of consumers don't actually value advice they're not prepared to pay a premium for what's a premium product and that's the challenge to the industry to better articulate what we do it's very clear financial advisors passionately believe in financial advice but then if they didn't who would um, but as in the industry, we really don't articulate well the differences between advised and non-advised. We need to make that easier for the consumer to understand. I it's a
1: challenge you, Ian, because we hear a lot of people. I mean, you said it very articulately there, but a lot of people say there's a lack of education in the. Um, in finance in general, as particularly what we call millennials don't know anything about investments and savings apps and what have you. Um, So what is it that you think that Britain needs to be doing, or the world, uh, to educate people about financial services?
2: Well, uh, I think the first thing that one needs to look at, the industry is very quick to to bemoan the lack of financial education. Um, That's a bit like Mars saying, it's not right that people don't like chocolate bars. With, you know, if you would never hear an FMCG company blame the consumer for the fact that there wasn't a demand for their product. Indeed, if you went into a meeting with an FMCG company and suggested that. You'd certainly get laughed out of the room. You might get physically thrown out of the room.
1: What they do is just load their products full of sort of cocaine and sugar and stuff and get you hooked. <laughs>
2: so what, what's the what's the financial equivalent about cocaine? You must be, you know, finding better. <laughs> I'm not naming a brand then. there. <laughs> well, I think the other brand brand that used to include that took it out some while ago. But who knows? Um, it, it, it's got to come down to yeah. We do. Financial education is now on, on the curriculum, but there was, some, there was some really interesting research done about 18 months ago by a company who were actually promoting training courses for people being, they were encouraging people to become plumbers, become tradesmen. And they went out to identify the top 10 things that people wish they'd learned at school. Five of those top 10 things were all about managing your money. Oh, yeah. They were about... I think number two was understanding the value of insurance. Oh, yeah. yeah, these were life lessons that people hadn't learned. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the primary problems that the long-term savings industry faces is we always want people to save for the future, but we just don't take an interest in their financial lives today. And people are too... the majority of consumers are too busy firefighting their day-to-day managing income, expenditure, debt, putting food on the table, looking after the kids and doing all the other things that they've got to do, if we want them to be able to save, we need to be able to help them to manage their day-to-day better. Because until we help them to manage their day-to-day better, they won't have the long-term capacity to save. So I believe it needs a fundamental change in attitude from within the financial advice community from within the financial services industry.
1: Ian, you're about to say pretty much everything you've just said to a room full of people, so we're going to let you go now. Where can
2: people find out about Digital uh, they, Wealth Insights? They can register at digitalwealthinsights.com. Great. Thanks Ian.
0: So, Michael, um that was a fascinating in- interview and a debate. But um, I wanted to know, actually, what subject... If you had to take a subject off the national curriculum, what would it be and why? Well, I think I'd probably
1: take maths off the national curriculum because having it on there just doesn't add up.
0: Good one. Um, there was actually one thing that was discussed on the panel that, that I thought was quite interesting. It's, I can't remember, I'm afraid, who said it, but somebody said... That millennials don't want to spend a couple of hours talking to an advisor. Anyway, they just they just can't be asked. And I disagree with that. Don't millennials love talking about themselves? Well, you
1: certainly do, Amy.
0: <laughs> Very funny. No, but seriously.
1: Um, I I I agree with you. I think that um it, the the view of a millennial a terrible phrase we've said that before. The view of of a millennial by a sort of a forty five fifty year old is probably the way that they were when they were kind of 25, 30. But but millennials are not the same as 25, 30-year-olds from 10, 20 years ago. They are actually much more financially astute now and interested in thinking about their future. And so, yeah, I agree, as in I disagree, like you, with that statement.
0: Okay that's all for this week. If you really like the podcast, you you know what to do. Give us a five star review and you can find us on the internet. Just search for Beer and Bites and that's Bites with a Y. Thanks for joining us. Cheers.
1: Thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>